2012 on radio.org.au Promoting Eucharistic Adoration through renewal and evangelization with Father David Nugent. Father Nugent belongs to the Missionaries of the Most Holy Eucharist based in the south of France, a small community of priests, deacons and seminarians dedicated to loving and spreading devotion to the real presence of Jesus in the Eucharist. This workshop was recorded in collaboration between Cradio and XT3 at Scene 2012. Yes, 19 days old as a priest, so uh, uh, I'll just present myself very humbly to you. There, uh, you might know more about promoting Eucharistic adoration uh, for renewal than I do. So anything I say, uh, if, if God puts it into your heart, uh, all well and good. Um, but there may be people in this room who have as much experience, if not a lot more, than me. So maybe towards the end, we can have a, a, a moment of sort of sharing question and answers and, and just speak about the topic. So the topic is promoting uh, Eucharistic ador adoration for renewal uh, and evangelization. I'd like to just take, to begin, the, the idea of renewal, just to begin with, uh, and then sort of speak about adoration, speak about um, uh, also evangelization, but also to speak about some of the experiences that our community has had. Can you hear me okay? Maybe I... Yeah. To, to speak about some of the experiences that our... Is that better? Yes. Uh, that our community has had uh, with various other bishops, uh, our own bishop in particular, who is spearhead in the new evangelization in France. It's a bishop called Dominic Ray. Um, and also through him, what we've had uh, the, the privilege to speak to certain cardinals and certain, uh, certain members of uh, the Curia. And it's, it's been a privilege because they have shared their vision for renewal and the vision of the Holy Father. And so I'll just speak about some of those meetings that we've had as well. So they're, they're it was a great privilege, but I'd like to start just with uh, the gospel, and just to to introduce. Uh, you're very welcome. To introduce just the idea of renewal, um, especially in our times. We we live in times where um, the faith, by and large, ha has maybe been on the decline uh, across the world. Well, maybe not across the world, but certainly. Um, in Europe, if you look at places like Italy, Spain and France, Ireland, um, these countries that once had a very Catholic culture and had really high mass practice rates, etc., are now at the stage where in France you maybe have 2% of the population that go to mass. And that's a Catholic heritage that has been, by and large, decimated. And so, um, the the word crisis is is uh, is fitting in those circumstances. Uh, and so, we live in an age where, in in order to to uh, to resurrect the church, if you like, it's not just a case of trying to manage a decline. Because that's by and large, uh, in many countries, that that battle has been lost. It's a case of a case now of trying to grow the church so that the church can survive because there are parts certainly of Europe where the church will not survive 
if something doesn't happen in the next five or ten years. You're looking at, at places where uh, people who go to mass are over the age of 70 and there's only maybe 50, 60 of them at mass. And, so, and dioceses, certainly in France, were traditionally, they may have had uh, three, four hundred priests, have 20 priests. So you can think of what is happening in terms of the Western world at least, and no country has been uh, free from these types of, uh, they're not free from these types of, of circumstances. So just, we, we, we perhaps are in a moment of crisis, um, but in moments of crisis, uh, the, the gospel is very clear uh, on what we can do. And so I'd just like to look at a, a passage very briefly, just to take some thoughts uh, from the gospel and to, be, to begin our, our reflection on renewal, evangelization and adoration. And so it comes from Matthew 8 and it's uh, verse 23. And I'll read 23 through to 27. And when he got in the boat, his disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves. But he was asleep. And they went and woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. And he said to them, Why are you afraid, O men of little faith? Then he arose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was great calm. And the men marveled, saying, What sort of man is this, that even winds and sea obey him? Even winds and sea obey him. It's a beautiful, uh, it's a very beautiful image for us. Um, so this gospel comes from Matthew and it comes at a time in Christ's life he has preached on evangelization before this because what we have before this not in this, the chronology of the gospel but in the chronology of Christ's life he's preached on the parables so he's gave this um, uh, magnificent teaching on how to evangelize he then it comes to, to evening time he gets in the boat he crosses the sea and this huge storm comes on the sea and he's asleep while this storm happens. So just to take the idea of that in the context of the circumstances that the church finds herself in now, it's in the boat, so clear analogy for the church, on the sea, which means in her mission, maybe in the world, and moving across to the other side, coming to the, its fulfillment to the end of time. but. There's, behold, the scripture says, a great storm was in the sea. And so this unsettles the boat. It unsettles the, the people in the boat. Um, but Christ is in the boat and he's asleep. And so there's a teaching that is immediate. Uh, and sometimes it, it, it's, it's something that, that we can reflect about. But why, above all times, does he sleep? In the middle of a storm, like it, it's just something that you say, well, how, how could he sleep? 
like he's obviously very tired in, in one sense, but in a divine way, why did he choose to be almost uh, like not in the, the land of the conscious? Why did, he, why did he choose to sleep when you would imagine it's a time when you know, they have, the apostles have the greatest need? And so there's a teaching. Christ is going to do something. Right? He is going, he knows it. He's going to calm the storm. He's going to bring calm. He's the creator. He's the Lord of heaven and earth. And so simply by his will, by his word, he can bring complete calm. It says he rebuked the winds and the sea. And there's complete calm. But this idea of Christ sleeping is before he does that. Okay, so before the Lord will bring calm and bring uh, uh, peace to, to, to the, the, the creation, to, to what is upset in the boat. He wants his disciples to come to his humanity. And so this idea that Christ is sleeping is the idea. It's his humanity that he's showing. He's true God. He'll show that towards the end of that gospel passage. But he's true man. And so it's Christ's humanity that the apostles must, must approach and they must, if you like, wake him. So they must wake him up and then appeal to him. And they appeal to him using the word Lord. So it's not master, it's Lord. So it's this act of faith in the divinity, but through his humanity. Now that is Eucharistic. Any way you want to look at that, that's Eucharistic. Because the only place that we can find Christ's humanity in the church is in the Blessed Sacrament. That is what the Blessed Sacrament is. It's the sacred humanity of Jesus Christ. And because he, that sacred humanity is present, the divinity is present. It's a person, a divine person, who has assumed a human nature. But he wills it that we come to the divinity through his human nature. And that's how he saves us. And so the apostles come to his feet. They wake him. And so that you have this idea of waking in Christ. His humanity is present in the boat. But they have, to, uh, they have to approach him. And they have to wake him. And just again to use that as an analogy for perpetual Eucharistic adoration. For taking the Lord into a state that's going to make him work. Again, it's a thought that I, I spoke on this morning briefly, but it, it comes from St. Peter Julian Amard. That when the Lord is put on the altar, and when he's exposed for adoration, and when someone is in front of him, there's going to be this divine work that happens. And we see it throughout the Gospels. Christ is going to do things. Things are going to be different because simply because he's present. Um, and this power that's in him we see it when he is roused when he is woken by the apostles when they put their faith in him as almighty god and when they appeal to him as the savior and when they recognize their deep need we are perishing then he says why are you afraid 
Why are you afraid? So it's a, it is something, again, even for our times, we have to, there is a lot of fear that is in the church right now. There's a, there's a lot to be fearful of, perhaps in the world. But the Lord still asks that question to us. Why are we afraid? And then, because it's a question of faith. And then he rises. And so, again, we have the idea of Christ's paschal mystery here, which is the, all of the power of Christ's life, death and resurrection is available to us onto our tongue when we receive Holy Communion but it is available to us to adore that power um, in the Most Holy Eucharist and so he's saying that why are you afraid I'm present and then this act of rising which is again Eucharistic this glorious body of Jesus Christ that's in our midst but we have this uh, in the text that he rose and rebuked the wind. And so there's maybe a grace that is being transmitted now in our times that has to do with Christ's resurrection. And so even the, the apostles, this here happened maybe in the middle of Christ's public life, but it's a sign for them of a deeper trial that's going to come when Christ is taken from them. Uh, he's handed over to the Jews, then to the Romans, and then he's hung on the cross. He dies, he's asleep in the tomb, and then he rises from the dead, and then he commissions them to go out into the world. And so that's just some ideas to begin this reflection. Um, th these ideas on, on renewal. Um, I spoke earlier on St. Peter Julian Amard. He's a very good reference point for all things Eucharistic. Uh, he had a, a, an extraordinary charism, but he, ver he was very prophetic in uh, how he spoke about Christ's presence in the Blessed Sacrament. He had an, a, a very strong idea of a Eucharistic age that would come in the life of the Church. And some things he said that at the beginning of the life of the Church, Christ sends out apostles to preach the cross Christ, Christ crucified. And so we've seen Paul uh, who, who uh, has this encounter with Christ resurrected, the resurrected Lord, and then is consumed by this mystery of Christ crucified. And basically, all over Europe, he just uh, pours out this mystery and converts countries for Christ. St. Peter Julian Amard, in a similar way, he was called the Apostle of the Eucharist, but he felt deep in his heart a conviction that a time was coming in the Church, a Eucharistic age was coming in the life of the Church, when the Lord would send out Apostles, but those Apostles would not be preaching the cross, they'd be preaching Christ in the Blessed Sacrament. And so he moved with that grace that came into to his own heart as a saint, and when he was raised up, as a saint, he was raised up during the Second Vatican Council. So it was the 9th of December, uh, 1962. And it was just right at the end of the first session of Vatican II. And so in the presence of the entire church, the Pope and all of the bishops gathered, this saint is raised up. And so if I give just an analogy from one of the parables of Christ, there's a parable that Christ teaches and it's got to do with 
the yeast that is hidden in the, th the three showers, I think it's three showers of flour. So you've got this idea that this Eucharistic grace was hidden in the renewal that was coming through Vatican II. This grace that initially was in a saint into a religious order, into a movement in a part of the world in France that was spread, that spread to Australia uh, again at the, around about the same time in the mid-1800s that was first and foremost in communities and religious orders was then taken into the life of the church like yeast hidden in, in flour and then this universal grace is now being uh, transmitted throughout the church and so this idea of a universal grace that's available to all Catholics for adoration is something that comes from Rome. It had to come from Rome. It comes, I believe, through the Second Vatican Council. If you read certain documents uh, that, that come after the Council, uh, you have Mysterium uh, Fidei by Paul VI in 1965, a very, very good reference point for the purpose of the Second Vatican Council because he puts it into the context of Eucharistic renewal. And so he's saying the purpose of the renewal is to bring us closer to Jesus Christ in the Most Holy Eucharist. And so you, you get that in the beginning of the document. Again, we have it then uh, in our own times in 2003 with Ecclesia de Eucharistia, where Pope, I mentioned it this morning, to rekindle the purpose of the document, to rekindle Eucharistic amazement in priests and faithful. And so it's a clear mandate coming from the church to speak just about a, a, another document that came, uh, it came through the Congregation for Clergy. I, I think I mentioned it this morning. It's called uh, Spiritual Motherhood and Eucharistic Adoration, or Eucharistic Adoration and Spiritual Motherhood. I can't uh, just remember the exact title, but it was issued by the Congregation for Clergy in 2007. It was issued on the 8th of December, 2007, and it had three parts to it. So you had a document that was uh, a document at the level of the magisterium. It was teaching the link between adoration and vocations. So it's, it's a clear link. It showed by example this link that when especially women, feminine souls prayed, then the document showed in history what happened through the rising up of either their own sons as priests, cardinals and bishops, or the link to, to, to uh, other priests, cardinals and bishops. And so there, there are many illustrations in that document that give us great hope uh, for the future, uh, especially when the church teaches it that way, that really we're maybe at the dawn of a particular type of priesthood that we have to pray very hard for a deep uh, Eucharistic priesthood. That could be what, what the Lord is, is doing right now. But anyway, you had that document. That document was accompanied by uh, a letter that was addressed to all of the bishops in the world. And that, uh, that letter, again, I mentioned a little bit of it, but the letter is clear. It says it speaks about renewal. And that renewal is not an activity, first and foremost. It's something that has to be present in the, at the level of being. So it's a little bit um, 
philosophical, but it, it's speaking to bishops, and it, it's it's uh, trying to make the point that if we don't begin with a spiritual work, then we don't begin. It's, that's the point it's making. We can't begin to renew if it's not first spiritually achieved through prayer. So it's talking about the primacy of prayer, and it's putting that primacy to bishops. And when it does that, uh, it also says that this, the, the church, okay, we have, and it, it doesn't put it quite like this, but I'm just putting it, paraphrasing it. The church has the sacraments as this power to, uh, to give us life, divine life. It has the liturgy uh, to help us celebrate this divine life. It has things like canon law and codes of canon law to help us live as a, as a church with a certain degree of structure, etc. So that's important. They are vital for the life of the church, but there's something primary, and it's union with Jesus Christ. It's primary to the sacraments, the liturgy, canon law, etc. So if we're looking to renew, it's about union with Christ. So the, the document makes it clear. And then in saying that, it says we can't divide Christ from his mother. We can't separate union with Jesus Christ from union with the Immaculate Heart of Mary. It can't be done. And that's what the, the document says. That's what the church teaches us. And so it, it then refers to Paul VI in how he commented on, uh, on the Second Vatican Council on the role of Our Lady in the council, in the documents in the council. And it, it, it then uses uh, the idea of the cenacle. This cenacle where Our Lady, we come into union with Our Lady, and that's how the church prayed for the gift of the Holy Spirit. So it did that in Jerusalem. And there's no change in this need for the church to, to be about the business of prayer in order to invoke the Holy Spirit to receive the grace to then carry uh, that, uh, that message of truth and the, the, the grace that comes through Jesus Christ into the entire world. It doesn't change. So that document uh, speaks about the primacy of prayer and then it speaks about Eucharistic adoration but in a perpetual context, 24 hours so it talks about the cenacle being something that has its, as its center Christ, but Christ being adored 24-7. And that this would be a springboard for vocations in the church. That was the purpose of the document. And then there was an appeal made to all bishops who can apprehend this, to put this into practice. Now it's a difficult thing for bishops to do that. And... Um, when I, when the very first time that I read the document, I felt called into that work. So I read it, I thought, right, that's what I want to do as a priest. I want to do that to try and, because it gives certain uh, concrete examples of how this could be lived. And one of the, the examples was that each diocese could have a shrine dedicated to Christ in the same way that there are Marian shrines dedicated to Our Lady have shrines dedicated to Christ where the clear uh, truth of his presence is just 
easily borne witness to by priests at his feet and by by the, the true beautiful celebration of the Holy Mass but by adoration 24-7 so you, you have this idea that, that those graces are coming but they're not maybe there yet because the church needs time to appropriate things and so when I read that, that document I was prompted to uh, to really vocationally ask the question what, what does Jesus want me to do and I came in contact through prayer and through asking that question th with a bishop in the south of France and that bishop is called Bishop Dominic Ray and he's very well known in France for evangelization and so I came in contact with him and uh, one of the things we immediately spoke about when I was with him and, and a priest of his diocese who, who uh, was uh, really trying to begin the work although he had worked in France but to do something at the level of a community that could then sort of grow under the, the protection of, of a bishop that could take some of the ideas from the document um, especially the idea of a shrine and try and, and say well right this maybe is something that we can put into practice in the life of the church but it needs to be worked at at the level of grace so that's something that, that our community really has as at its heart this desire to have a Eucharistic shrine a Eucharistic sanctuary wherever the case may be um, in the world and to, to come to to try and live out of that basis to promote adoration from that basis, a basis of, uh, of a, a center for adoration. So that, that was something that, that practically um, we were, were, were discerning at a practical level with the bishop in France. Now just to, to, to sort of um, bring this into the context, there's another bishop in France called uh, Monsignor Marc Aye, and when he was uh, nominated bishop, he was nominated bishop for a diocese in the southwest of France called Bayonne. And Bayonne uh, is a diocese that suffered in the last 40, 50 years, and maybe very typically in France and in Europe. And so you have a very disaffected presbyterate, some priests who maybe a lot of priests have maybe left or are very much uh, at pains with their ministry and it pains with the idea of the mystery of the church and the mystery of Christ etc so there's a there's an evident difficulty there and also that has been reflected into uh, the faith in that area of the world so he came into something that he knew uh, it can't be fixed now he's a, he's a young bishop extremely talented uh, extremely well formed but the first thing that he did was he said this diocese has to get down on its knees before Jesus Christ and adore him so that we can get the grace to have holy priests and so that's what he did he opened two perpetual adoration chapels in the diocese and he signed up for hours during the night which is a great witness and then he asked the seminarians of the dying there was only two at the beginning when he took over but now there are about 20 odd seminarians. He asked them to do the same. And so the Lord rewarded him with vocations. And it's a, it's a very clear sign. When there are vocations, it's a clear sign of God's grace 
but it's also a sign that beforehand someone has been praying because the Lord gives it as a mandate pray the Lord of the harvest and so we are at a moment in history where we need to get down on our knees before Jesus Christ present in the most holy sacrament of the altar and say Lord save us we are perishing and that is almost everywhere in the world in, in the, con the Catholic context so those are some ideas just on on the, uh, the idea of renewal we had a meeting then um, in 2009 with a cardinal now this cardinal is is very powerful if you meet him he, he his word is extremely powerful and his name is Cardinal Piacenza and you meet people and you, you hope they're the next Pope that's what I when I met him I just next Pope please because this <laughs> like we have been blessed with amazing popes and he would just continue that sort of heritage in recent times so uh, we, we met him in 2009 and uh, we met him in the, with the context to speak about this document and he came uh, and he addressed our community very graciously through Monsignor Ray uh, but he spoke and his word burned into my heart anyway and I'm sure hearts of the, the other men that were there I mean really burned and when you hear because he, he represents the Pope on these matters because he's, he's, he heads up the congregation for clergy so it's for him to decide these things on behalf of the church but that means there's a grace that means something is coming at the level of the life of the church that will eventually make it into the particular diocese and be lived but he spoke and he he spoke about uh, St. John Marie Vianney the Curie of ours and how St. John Marie Vianney was a pastor right, and had this union with Jesus Christ at the level of the Good Shepherd and that the church is a family it was a very beautiful and that priests are there to shepherd the flock and we really need good priests to do this and so he was speaking about the priesthood and how uh, St. John Marie Vianney arrived at his pastoral vision from union with Christ in the tabernacle which is a powerful thought so he was given this vision from Christ of how to renew but I mean he did renew if you look at anything in the life of the Curie of ours it is absolutely startling what he did and how he drew the souls to him but through through the grace of the priesthood and how he lived his priesthood now with that in mind that's what the cardinal was saying eucharistic adoration can bring to the church these types of priests but we have to pray for them so it has to be done through adoration and so that's what he was saying that's the purpose for the document it's to then bring real, true renewal into the, into the priestly life through, through uh, saintly priests. And then they will sh shepherd the flock. You know, so the flock will be protected. Now, in that backdrop, the cardinal started to speak about the scandals. Because the, the church, I don't, I don't maybe here, it's, it's been rocked by scandals. But certainly in Ireland, the church has been these winds that are blowing 
and the sea being uh, coming in o- into the boat. You can see that in Ireland. You go to Ireland for uh, for half an hour, and you you start to feel this this uh, coming off the media. Come, it's everywhere. It's in the newspapers. It's on the TV. It's and it's almost without cessation. This attack on on the church, but at the same time, it's it's it is the witness of priests that have led to this crisis. So this, these scandals that co- have come into the life of the church and have disgraced the priesthood in, certain, in the minds of so many people. What the cardinal said is that this, and he accused the word disgrace, said this is a disgrace, uh, the, the scandals that are caused by priests who have been unfaithful to their calling, that this has to be repaired as well. And so he said, we've 40 years of these difficulties in terms of at least them being manifest visibly in the church. And he said, we possibly need 200 years of, re- of reparation to, to make up for this. So that was the idea. He said, we need to pray. We need to get down in front of the Lord. And he said more or less the same thing as Monsignor Mark Ayer. We need to get down and adore Christ. And he was asked by a priest it was in the context of pastoral renewal. And this priest had, was looking at the idea of doing a course in pastoral renewal. Uh, to, and the cardinal said, look, courses are very good. It's a very good thing to do a course in pastoral renewal. Or you can just do Eucharistic adoration. And you will probably get more. Now, he didn't say, don't do your course. But he said, look, that is the witness uh, that the saints have given us. They didn't study that much. They studied Christ. And then from that study of Christ, they burnt with love for him. And that is what is needed in the church right now. And so that's the idea of renewal and adoration. So that's where we are with adoration. Adoration is that renewal. And so when, when the, the, he was at that time, when the document was written, Cardinal Piacenza was, uh, was the archbishop. He was the secretary to Cardinal Humes. But it was he who had to go across and present the document. The morning it was released, he had to present the document to the Holy Father. And so this was the, the, maybe the 9th of December 2007. He has a meeting with the Holy Father. He presents the document to the Holy Father. The Holy Father opens it. The Holy Father being, you know, a man of enormous light. He reads, he reads down through the document. Reads it. Looks up, looks up at the Cardinal and says, this is the renewal of the church. And he said, get me a number of these documents and give them to the sisters who pray for him. So he, uh, that's what he did. He said it was the renewal of the church. And so it is the renewal of the church. Eucharistic adoration is the renewal of the church in our times because it's Christ and Christ is always the agent of renewal we are just watching him do it when we come before him in adoration and so it's to have this enormous confidence that when we have approached the Lord and when we have said to him Lord save us that you can be guaranteed of this that Eucharistic adoration will pull the church into a great calm It'll pull the church into a time when those winds will stop and the church will enjoy a, a real moment of 
divine contemplation of the, the church will say because it'll know it's, it was the person that we took out of the tabernacle and put on the altar that did all of this the church will say who is this that even the winds and the sea obey him and so that is our saviour Jesus Christ um, maybe just before because I want to speak uh, what time is the, the I'll, I'll speak Okay, it's just I want to have some time for, uh, for, for questions and answers. So maybe if I speak for another 15 minutes, and then if we take some time just to, 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 to speak. Um, I'd like to just, just the idea of evangelization. Uh, if, if maybe if I had a bit more time. I, I, if, Eucharistic adoration and evangelization. It, it, I remember... Uh, I think it again was Cardinal Piacenza who, who just pointed one time, this was at another time, we've had a couple of times where we met him, he just pointed at the altar and he said that this evangelization comes from here, comes from, from the altar, comes from the mass, flows out from the heart of the church. And uh, it's something that the church, in a certain way, uh, not the church, but movements in the church, have to this has to dawn on them again that evangelization is eucharistic you can't not as catholics we can't not speak about what is at the source and summit of our faith and so whatever way we come to evangelize no matter what that is there has to be this union eucharistic union with christ and that so the we can maybe, if I just take a thought from St. Thomas, he, he looks at various ways that we are in union with Christ. And he says that there are those souls that are in union with Christ at the level of creation. So he's the Word, and through him all things were made. And so they, they, they know Jesus, but it's not explicit. So it's not at the level of grace. They know Christ, but because he's, he is... Uh, he is the divine word he's brought them into life so it's at the level of creation they can know about God then he says but there's a distinction when when God draws and it's he's referring to the fact that uh, no one can come to me unless the father draws me so that this grace which is the faith which uh, draws us into an explicit knowledge of God the Son and then therefore God the Father and God the Holy Spirit that this, when this is given, this is like a second level of union with Christ. And then he says, but there's this other level of union, which is a deeper level, which is at the level of a special love that Christ gives. And he, in the context that St. Thomas was commenting on this, on this is when Christ instituted the Most Holy Eucharist. So it was on Holy Thursday night. It's in his commentaries on St. John's Gospel. And so when Christ institutes the Holy Eucharist, he gives those people who, who are with him a special outpouring of his love, a special outpouring of a knowledge of him and an intimacy with him. And Catholics have that privilege. Not all exercise it, but we have that privilege. And that has to be, because that then can animate everybody at the level of grace. So anybody who's baptized in the body of Christ can receive this if it's 
witness to them. And so that is what the church has to do. It has to give a very clear witness to all those people who don't know Christ in the Blessed Sacrament that that is God. And we can't do that outside of adoration, outside of worship. So how we celebrate the Mass and how we adore the person at the center of our faith will tell others, like say, for example, Protestants, that that is God. And so there's a... There's a it's, it's, it happens very often. We hear it in many conversion stories of people who, who, who come to the faith. Invariably, it's Eucharistic that, that, that makes them convert uh, and truly enter into the life of the Church. It's Eucharistic. They come to this realization that that is Almighty God. And so we have that in our hearts from Holy Communion. And so it can be... It, it's implicit. How we make that explicit is uh, is how is a matter for adoration because it becomes explicit when we adore. That's how we show other people that that's God because only God is is uh, deserving of adoration. And so it's that if parishes and so if we just take the first sort of basic unit of uh, of the life of the church the parish if parishes are coming out to adore Christ morning noon and night that's evangelization that tells anybody who wants to know that that's God at least that the parish can do that at, at the level of its uh, uh, its community or at the, at the level of its entity what it is if a parish adores it says we have Jesus with us because people who are really alive in their faith, who maybe don't know Christ in the Blessed Sacrament, but know Christ because they have grace and they have faith to believe in him, believe in his name and his word. They, like, and it's a comment that they, they some, some people that I know make, that if they say, if that was Jesus Christ, I wouldn't leave that church. That's a fair point. Because they do love Christ. They're baffled by Catholics who say, well, it's Christ, but are indifferent to that reality. So that is evangelization in a negative sense. That if we aren't fully alive as Catholics in the truth that is, sits at the very center of our faith, well, then we, in a certain way, are nullified in our evangelization. We, we can't, if we're not alight with that fire that comes from Christ in the Blessed Sacrament, we can't set fire to anyone else. And it is, as St. Peter Julian Amhart said, first and foremost, it's a question of, of fire. That is what it is when it comes to the Eucharist. It's that fire and zeal and desire for Jesus Christ in the Most Holy Eucharist that sets other people alight. And it's a light. And so, in the prologue of St. John's Gospel, the true light is Christ. But he has a witness and that witness points to the light. And that witness is St. John the Baptist. But St. John the Baptist, in order to point at the light, has to be, has to have in him, although St. John says he's not the light, but he has to have this union with the light. And that is this, St. Thomas puts it like this, he says, he's, a, he's set on fire by Christ. That's what makes him able to point to him and draw others to Christ. And so it's this being set on fire that comes from adoration. 
that comes from adoration. If you adore Jesus Christ, if you give him that priority, which, again, Pope Benedict says, so when Pope Benedict says, he says, Eucharistic adoration is not a luxury. It's a priority. And so, as Catholics, we have this duty to adore. Pope Paul VI, six, the sixth, sorry, says, it's sweet, but it's still a duty. We have to come into the Lord's presence, bow down and adore. And the sweetness comes from the fact that we receive such grace in doing that. Now, the more we do that, the more capable we will be of evangelizing souls at whatever way we meet them, in whatever capacity, because Christ in adoration works in a deep spiritual way. And if I had more time, I'd go into some of the parables uh, that are in St. Matthew. And I'll just briefly give you just a spread of the parables. There are seven parables that Christ teaches on. And the parables are split into certain subjects. The first two parables, the parable of the sower, which you all probably know, the parable of the darnel, which you, you potentially are aware of as well, the, the idea that uh, the wheat and the darnel grow together. They're obstacles to evangelization. So Christ gives them, one is at the interior level, and the other is at the exterior level, in the church. So, but in us, there are obstacles to evangelization. There are obstacles for what Christ does in us as the sore, because the sore is Jesus Christ. So when we are in front of him in adoration, there are blocks, and he has to work through those. And sometimes what he's doing, which again, Pope John Paul II says, adoration is a transformation. It's a radical transformation of us and of the world. And so, but what, the, what Christ is doing, he's transforming what initially might be bad, soil into good soil so that the seed can uh, take root and grow and bear fruit and then that fruit when when that seed is born fruit then others can feed on that but it's for us to initially have those obstacles worked through with Christ and that happens at the level of the spiritual life it happens in adoration and so the Lord there are things I'll finish with this because I do want some time for, for questions and answers. But the parables are rich and there, there's a lot to them. But just if I just focus on the first one as something that each heart has to be able to do in order to evangelize. So Christ speaks about three types of soil or three types of obstacles. So there's bad soil and good, so good soil, but the bad soil... Right, you have when the seed lands, it's like a path, and then he says the bird, uh, the birds of the air come and they take the seed, and so you've got this idea of a path. Saint Luke talks about the seed being trampled as it lands. So the seed lands on a path, but it doesn't go into the soil because the soil it's brick hard, but it's a path, and the idea there is that that heart doesn't meditate. It has no reflection. The seed lands, and another thought lands, and another thought lands, and there's no distinction between what comes from God and what comes from the world. And so the devil takes what comes from God because he's got access to that heart. That heart is exposed to far too many useless thoughts. And so it's that we have to guard our hearts and our minds 
and we know that. So, but that's we can't evangelise if we're spending uh, five six hours watching TV a day and five six minutes praying. There's no evangelization. You can forget about it. There's no point even thinking you're going to do anything. You can't to take the word of God seriously, to take Christ seriously, and it requires meditation. If you're going to evangelize, it requires you to interiorize Christ's work in your own heart. So that's the first point. The second point, and the first point in that is that the gospel, which is a grace, comes from Christ, which comes very powerfully in adoration, has to be fixed in our own heart. If that doesn't happen, we can't evangelize. Whatever we do, it won't work because it's not fixed in us. And so people will know you don't practice what you preach. So there's no, that's just a fact. The next thing is the actual growth, if you like, or the, the, the stage where the, the seed does penetrate into the soil. Right? And in adoration, this is where the Lord really can work with us. The first stage is people who don't adore. This is what I believe. People who don't adore are that first stage. Or people who don't really pray. They're that first stage. People who adore pass into this second stage. If they give Christ time, then already the soil is able to receive. And so in adoration, we are receiving. We're receiving something that's being put into our souls from Jesus Christ. And then that works itself out in other people's lives as well. Our word, our witness works itself out because Christ is the agent. So the sower has sown and so in adoration, that is what's happening. But there are two states of affairs that we have to pass through. One is adversity. So Christ is going to, the seed is going to be tested. And there are going to be trials. And what happens when trials come, if that seed hasn't penetrated sufficiently, what the Lord says, it shoots up. But the minute that there is, the sun shines, that, that, uh, the seed's scorched because it has no root. And when he's explaining this, he's really, that's what he's saying. The minute that there is persecution on account of Jesus Christ, that's it. The soul backs off Christ because it had to suffer for him. And it will just back off. And so we can't evangelize if that's all that's in us. These little, so there's a, what the Lord says, yes, there's a rejoicing in the word, but it's limited it's for a period of time. In a conversion, we all have that to begin with. There's a rejoicing in the word, and then bang, we're hit by a trial, and we'll, that is where it's, it's found out whether or not we are going to be able to truly hold the word. Now, what Christ says in this regard, what he's teaching us here, and this is what happens in adoration. It was something I tried to get across this morning. It's a question of desire, right? Who do we... Who do we love more? And that's what, what this rocky soil is. It's a question, do we love... Lots of people love Jesus, just not enough. That's, they just don't love him enough because they love football, maybe more. Or they may love alcohol more. Or they may love uh, socializing more. And they might know that, but a trial shows that up. And so that's what the Lord is saying. When something comes that makes the heart decide between two things and you have to make a choice, it's either going to be Jesus or it's going to be this. If we're drawn more by this, we'll go this way. And so that's what the Lord's saying. That's soil. And he works on that soil in adoration. 
So he can, he can transform that rocky soil that can't hold the word into good soil. And that's what he does with a blast of divine light and heat that comes from adoration. Third, so that's you've adversity. All of us are going to face trials and choices for Christ. And if we don't choose Christ, we can't evangelize. And every time we go to adoration, we choose Christ. And so no matter what's happening in your life, adore him. You're overcoming the world in the choice of just walking into an adoration chapel and bowing down and adoring him. It's a choice for him. The third aspect, and I'll finish with this, is the, the seed gets sown. It's not rocky soil. So we could even say the seed is sown in good soil and it, uh, it takes root and it begins to grow and then it gets choked by thorns. And so there's this idea, and this is important for us all, in order for that properly to grow, we need to find rest with Christ because the thorns sting. Okay, So these thorns sting Christ's work. They prevent us maybe as we're coming to a door, boom, we're bombarded with so many cares and different things that take over and that these draw us away from peace and they draw us into worry and especially if it's, it's at the level of the world. So the Lord says, the cares for the world, that really works against God's providence. Like we can't, sometimes we can't trust him enough to just follow him because we need to do something for ourselves in order to have that security, etc., etc. And sometimes that does come to us in prayer and as a distraction, but we act on it. And these things, they take away, they choke, if you like, the, the work of contemplation and meditation in the heart. They choke it with just an activity that has as, as its root anxiety. That's what the Lord's sort of teaching there. But then there's this other aspect to it that if we try and find delight or satisfaction in anything that isn't rooted in God, we'll never be satisfied. <coughs> we'll never be satisfied outside of Christ. That is just something that, that it's a hard lesson for people. And they can live their lives with moments of peace, and tr but they're never going to be satisfied because it is dependent on something outside of them to be given, whether that be money, security, whatever the case may be. Now those things choke the word. They choke uh, God's action in us. And so it's the third bit. Christ in adoration detaches us from what we would normally be worried about or thinking about. He does that over time. He draws our heart away and he teaches us how to trust. And he does that sometimes by, by trial, but he's teaching us how to trust him. And then when you know that that is him, and that you really trust him, that in itself, you take that grace out into the world, you bear fruit with that type of grace. Radio.org.au